And so I'm here with Jess and she is the amazing rural women's physio who offers some incredible services online. Jess has so humbly agreed to come and speak to our herd community about her passion and supporting women and how that came about. Jess, do you want to start by introducing yourself and telling us who's in your family? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Really excited to be able to speak to your community and share a bit of my story in the hope that it reaches a few people and hopefully a few women when they might need it most. Um, I am a physiotherapist working in women's health and I have been now for ooh, 12 going on 13 years. Uh, and my um, drive into that area came about from personal experiences and particularly through my first birth. Um, but now I offer face-to-face services here in Tamworth where I'm based at Fit to Function, which is my bricks and mortar business. And then also what I'm working to do with Rural Women's Physio is to expand my services and be able to reach the women that really need it but really can't get here. So we're talking rural and remote women who need our help, but to travel, the travel for services such as physiotherapy is just off the cards. It's too far. It's too long-winded, we need follow-up appointments, it's expensive, and let's be honest, trying to organise a family is just a whole nother level in itself. Just even making time to recognise that the symptoms that you might have are actually related to that and then navigate, okay, well, what allied health professional do I need to support that? And then finding one that doesn't have a, a wait list as long as your arm or even one that's not 500 kilometres away is really difficult. So I think that online platform is a game changer for rural regional women. It absolutely is, and we've just seen like an enormous amount of growth in that area over the last couple of years. And I think it all started out um, with you know our buy from the bush campaigns, where we got to increase our awareness of of rural businesses. And then I really think the health space has actually just followed that, and we've realised that we can reach these women. These women really need us, um, and this is. The, it's the only way to do it because first and foremost, we need to educate women. We need to let them know that, A, these problems do have an answer and there are people that can help you. And then also, how do they source that? Where can they get that? So I think there's a lot of education. There's so much, and you would know there's so much work in the background just to be able to reach these people to be like, no, you don't have to put up with that. No, this is a symptom that isn't normal let's let um, help you find some services. Absolutely. I'm so, the whole premise of Her Herd is about um, making a central point where all of these rural creative solutions can be found. So you're not having to, you know, talk to 8 million girlfriends or spend hours Googling on the internet only to find it doesn't exist. Um, you can come here and you can find all these creative problem solving solutions. Um, so you have three beautiful um, little bundles of joy. Yes, I do. So I have Archie, who's my eldest. Now he is 11, which is unbelievable. It's unbelievable um, to me because if you, if anyone out there is looking at photos of Jess online, easily looks 25. And so when I read she had an 11-year-old, I nearly backflipped off my <laughs> couch and thought, I really need Botox. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's really, really kind. Um, it all depends on how much I have and then the great work from wonderful photographers 
Um, but it, yeah, I have an 11 year old, um, and I always have seemed, uh, in a rush to achieve things. So I actually had him when I was 23. So I was a baby, um, on these days standards anyway. And then I've got Callie who is nine and Boston who just went seven. So my baby is seven now, which is unbelievable. That's crazy. I couldn't imagine Charlie being seven. That would be just, yeah, no, that's not conceivable to me right now. But anyway. (laughs) What do they say? The years are quick, but the days are slow. Yes, very much so. (laughs) Um, So 23, um, because you're... Your birth story obviously has a bit of a twist, and I know you speak a lot about birth trauma and um, birth injuries on your um, platform. So do you want to take us – that would have been really a lot to navigate at 23. Do you want to take us to how you decided that you were ready to have a baby and um, through his pregnancy? Yeah, well, um, I'll be completely honest. We weren't planning on babies. Um, Arty just happened. So we were engaged um, and we were six months out from our wedding when we realized that we were pregnant. Um, it took a little bit to come to terms with. I think it took my husband at the time a day. He picked me up from work the next day and was all excited and I was like, hold that thought, not ready yet. Um, so it just sort of brought that next that next stage for us in terms of a family forward. And who knows how long it brought it forward. I'm not sure. I'm glad I never had to wait and think am I ready, am I not, and that it just happens for us. Um, and so we were actually over in regional Western Australia when um, when we fell pregnant and wanted to come back to the eastern states. So my family are all based in Glen Innes and we needed to have uh, some support around us. So also my husband at the time's family were based in Brisbane, so we just wanted to get back to these eastern states. Um, but obviously as well, being 23, I was really career focused. I was, you know, relatively, relatively fresh out of uni. Um, and I wasn't ready to take a backward step. So I worked, um, over in WA up until about five, six weeks before my due date and then moved back home. And I can remember, must have been when we were home for, um, our wedding in the December and Artie's an April baby, I went and saw my local doctor, my family doctor who had um, delivered all of us, um, had, you know, looked after our family all the way through and she was fantastic, a GPOB. And then she said, so where are you having this baby? And I was like, oh, I don't know. I think they're going to move through there. <laughs> and can I say, in a rural setting, GPOBs are the backbone of obstetric care here. Oh, they absolutely are. And I find that really terrifying as well because, um, yeah, the GPOB who delivered Artie, she has just retired. And back at home in Glen Ennis, there, there are now, um, or there's two. One of them isn't primary English speaking and she's wonderful, but I know that some of the ladies are saying there's a little bit of a language barrier or more of an understanding barrier. Yeah. Um, which is hard for them to navigate. And then the other is also nearing retirement. So it's a really worrying trend that our GPOBs in our rural areas just just aren't being replaced. No, GPs in rural areas, I mean, um, Armadale in particular, has been on plenty of news reports recently about the extensive GP shortage and then to add a specialty on top as well when these people are so overworked and then add the expectation of that they have to do hospital rounds to have rights there. It's just insane. It absolutely is. 
It absolutely is. And especially at this day and age where, you know, we're looking for balance. So that's what came out of COVID. We had an enormous rate of burnout in the health sector. Um, and you can't expect that uh, in um, in any community, but particularly in a rural community. How do you put up boundaries when you know every second person, when you know this every second person that is being um, admitted to hospital, that is so hard. Like, so hard. You can't have boundaries, but then you also... Yeah, I, you can't work that much. I don't know how they do it. I even look back at, because um, my GPOB had kids that were our age, and I look at at their their family life and how busy the parents were and, and an enormous uh, participants in the community, and I absolutely take my hat off to them. I think they are the absolute backbone of our community, but I just look at it and I think I don't know that I could have a whole community relying on me that heavily. No, it must be an enormous weight that they go to sleep with it on their shoulders every night. Um, I know here in Armidale we have two. Um, we just lost the only private obstetrician that we had. Um, we have some people locoming, but it's definitely something that um, I think our parents probably, I know my mum used to uh, a GPOB um, in the private sector and used a private hospital, but um, it's definitely a dying art, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Which we tend to get away with, like even um, here in Tamworth, like we have our private obstetricians and then our locums, and hopefully we're meant to be getting a new um, consultant ob- obstetrician this year. Um, and so we can just get away with it in our regional areas, but there's no way you're going to get a specialist like that in a rural area. Absolutely not. So you hadn't thought about a hospital. You were just like, okay, I've got a GPOB. Yeah, a little bit of the seat of my pants. I look back now and there's no way my now personality would have coped with that. Um, but, you know, I was a little bit younger and a little bit more... And you right, don't know what you don't that. know as well. That's so true. You don't know what you don't know. Um, and so she said, well, I think you better come back here and birth here. And I was like, okay, great. That's, that, you know, one decision taken out of my hands. And so we moved back to Gwenana, um, maybe a month or so, maybe five weeks before I... Um, birthed Artie, um, stayed in a little cabin on my uncle and auntie's place and, you know, it was wonderful. Had a, an enormous amount of support from my extended family um, and then school friends and it was nice to be back home. It would have actually really settled really quite well into that nesting phase to, to come back and to be surrounded and supported. Absolutely, absolutely. It was really lovely and we we're very lucky to have um, a very large um like very large and close-knit community, but also then extended family. So I had as much help as what I could have or wanted to ask for, which was great. And can you deliver at Glen Innes Hospital? They have an obstetric, like they have a maternity ward. Yeah, yeah, they do. At the time, they didn't have um, midwives on full-time. It was midwives on pretty much like as needed. Okay. Uh, so it's there were, um, if there were birthing mums or someone would always be on call, obviously. So if there were, was a mum in there, then I, I know, I know there were a couple of my nights, um, when I was in hospital that I was looked after by, um, nurses that were on the wards as opposed to actual midwives. Um, but yeah, they do. It's a system that works, I think. It's a, yeah, it is a system that works. It did work. Um, the care I received was really great. Um, I um, obviously had a, I, I experienced some physical trauma throughout the birth, um, but I, but the care I received wouldn't have changed that. 
no. as such. So um, take me to your first signs of labour starting. Um, I woke up and stood up to go to the bathroom and my waters broke and I can just remember the being Oh, a Hollywood oh. moment. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I think I, I don't think I wet myself. I think my waters broke. Um, but to speak of the, you know, the rural health system again, the two weekends before that, my GPOB was away and she actually sent me to Armadale to stay for the weekend just in case I went into labour thinking that because I was two weeks overdue. Um, a whole 14 days overdue. So um, that's, she had... That's a significant distance. It is. And and she said you can choose to go or you could stay here, but you'll have to go if you um, go into labour. And so we went down and we stayed for the weekend. We just, the first the first weekend we got an Airbnb, uh, well, it wasn't Airbnb then, a B&B, because there must have been something on in Armadale. There was no accommodation. Um, and then the second weekend we stayed in accommodation. Um, but yeah, even just to be, I guess a little bit uprooted to be, and then you're left in, in another town sitting around just kind of waiting for this to happen. But also Um, that continuity of care, we know that that is the number one protective factor around birth trauma. So, you know, how wobbly you must have felt when that continuity had been wiped out. I just couldn't imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then just not knowing what to expect. Like I went in and saw the obstetrician at the time um, at a hospital. He gave me a stretch and sweep. There was no discussion about this beforehand. Um, and yeah, I just didn't know what to expect. Okay. So I guess surrendering at the time to the health system, to your health practitioners um, and, and hoping for the best. Yeah. Yeah, and when you come from an allied health background or health background at all, I think you kind of just sometimes submit yourself, even with your high literacy of health, you kind of just submit yourself to your colleagues because you think, okay, well, they have done the training, they know best, but sometimes we don't obviously advocate for ourselves strongly or ask questions or give informed consent when we should. I completely agree with that. That's a super interesting thing to bring up because my um, sister is a paramedic and she is pregnant she's 13 or 14 weeks pregnant now um through IVF and she found herself in the hospital um three times during the first 10 weeks or so and ended up with hyperstimulation of her ovaries and she found it so challenging to advocate for herself so she's down south um and we my mum and I traveled down um but she had been discharged from hospital and then happened to go back in the day after we left and I can remember being on the phone to her husband and I said and I was saying I was like Tom you can't let like you you need to advocate for Amanda like she she's not going to do it she um you don't know the significance of what you're going through. You're not assessing yourself. And then also they are your colleagues. And you don't want to be a burden as well because you know how hard they're working. So you're just like, this has to be serious before I do anything or say anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And then uh, you also know the system. So I know um, Amanda being a paramedic, she was like, no, I know what level I've triaged. I know I'm not going to be seen. Um, But... She also dreaded thing for emergency, knowing how you're being triaged. Oh, you'd never go. You would never go. No. Um, and so it was really, I just found that really interesting, and having to have a really frank discussion both with my mum and 
my brother-in-law just being like, you're the one who needs to speak for her. Like, I know it seems in this situation that she is, you know, as you said, has the health literacy, but she can't advocate for herself. You just can't. No. And hyperstimulation is a serious situation um, in IVF. Yeah. That's, a, that's quite painful and it's a serious situation. You need to get help. Yeah, and that's it. And she, yeah, it was, she, you know, fell between a couple of specialists for a little while. Anyway, she ended up getting the help that she needed, which was wonderful. Um, but it was just very eye-opening being on, on that side of it, I suppose. Yeah, I bet. So your, your waters break, you're back in Glen Innes. Do you go straight in or do you kind of hang it out? We went straight in um, and thank goodness we did because we were – um, probably only 10 minutes out of town, but by the time we got into town, uh, my contractions were intense. So my labor was very fast. So, um, well, fast for a first time. Um, so four and a half hours and he was born. That's it, was intense. it was intense from the word go. So by the time we got um, into the hospital, I couldn't even track. Uh, and obviously as well, because it had hit um, so quickly and so intense. I wasn't in the mind frame to be tracking either. And I can remember them trying to monitor my uh, my contractions, trying to put the monitor on me. And I just couldn't even sit there. It would get to the peak of the contraction. I would stand up. I would rip them off. I would, um, you know, all the bodily fluids, I would vomit at the peak of the contraction. Yeah. I sh- shit myself twice just to out there. Um, it was really full on and um, really abrupt for me as well. Obviously, having never gone through it, I was young. None of my girlfriends had gone through it. No, and there's still an element that people don't talk about. Like, I said to a girlfriend the other day, everyone was really happy to talk to me about their elective sleezers, but no one actually told me to make sure that I had situated my situation down there and shaved my pubic hair because that was a whole thing that had to happen before they could start. And I was like, I was just waiting for my OB to go, to blow all the hair off so she could stir my Caesar. I was like, like, why do we not talk about this? And she was like, oh, it's just a thing. I was like, oh, okay. Radio. Yes, it is. um, Yeah. Not a lot of deep impact. Oh, there really isn't. And it is hard. I find it not hard conversations to have with pregnant women, and navigating that I have um, a lot that comes up in our um, birth preparation appointments and they are really concerned about this loss of dignity and I feel like all I can give them is, hey, it happens, we all go through it, just get ready for it. Because Yeah, I say to my clients that it's just not going to be a priority for you on the day. I know it feels like it's a priority for you now, but when you're in that moment, it just is not going to be what you're thinking about or that priority to you in in the actual giving of birth. Maybe after, but in that actual process of delivery, um, thinking about what's hanging out or what might be coming out is just not going to be a consideration on in that very moment. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually a really good way to talk about it. So, um, yes, I'll keep that one in mind. <laughs> so all the things are happening and it's really intense and really quick. Yes, yeah. So it was really intense, really quick. At the peak of the contractions, I, I, I couldn't sit still. All of the nervous energy um, really struggled. It felt like I didn't ever even really had a, a chance to get into my zone. Um, 
my husband at the time was wonderful. He did all of the right things. Um, and I can remember, I guess, having the knowledge that I did have, not having trained in women's health at the time. Um, I, but I had a good friend who was in women's health. Like, I know that the average first time labor is 12 hours. I have got so long to go. I can't handle this. I thought I was like, I'm a, I'm a rural kid. I'm off the farm. I would have said I'm, like I'm, I'm resilient. I can do this. This is, and I had a client say to me at the time when I was pregnant, it's just a job and you just have to get through it. And I can remember thinking, oh yeah, no worries. Like I know it'll be intense, but I've got this. And, um, I got to that point and I was like, nah, you're going to have to give me something. Now I know I said no, no drugs, but you're going to have to give me something else. Well, I was going to say, what, um, what are they offering up there? Because I think a lot of city people would be really surprised that, um, not all, not all the things are readily available. Like if you call for a, um, a for a, a spinal block at, at one of the private hospitals in Sydney, someone will be there within ten minutes. But um, that might not be the case in in rural areas. Or a bath might not be available. Showers not might not be available. Uh, what was what was available to you? Yeah, yeah. And again, keeping in mind this is eleven going on twelve years ago now as well. But um. That was part of the reason why those couple of weekends beforehand I had to go out of town because they needed to have the anaesthetist as well as one other doctor in town at the time so that they were on call and they could come and deliver it. Even even if you needed to go to emergency Caesar, that was the biggest risk was that they needed to have the anaesthetist in town. Um, And so they wouldn't let you birth in town unless you had uh, unless he was in town, yeah. Um, and so, yes, they. I still had the options of um, an epidural, um, and at the time, all I took was the gas uh, because by the time they checked, I was eight centimeters dilated yeah. and nearly ready to go. But I can remember the midwife saying to Bray, my husband at the time, um, saying, um, "You know, you're going to have to calm her down. She's got a long way to go." And I just remember being like, I know how long I possibly have to go. Like, I this is not what I expected. <laughs> yeah, I did not sign up for this. I, I've read all the things I needed to read. I'm cl- I'm clearly aware that I've got a long way to go, but I can't manage. That's why I'm asking for something now. But you didn't really have that long to go. I didn't. Now reflecting on it, I think at that point I was probably in that transition state um, where we all tend to, you know, panic. adrenaline peaks. We panic. We lose our mind a little bit, definitely lose our focus. Um, and so, yes, now reflecting on that, I was probably in that phase. <laughs> awesome. So then what happens? Um, so I birthed Artie and, you know, birthing him was was a, a relief, really. Um, but as he as I did birth, I was on the, the birthing stool and um, I think his head came out quite well and then his shoulders and he sort of just, fell out and and he was okay he was you know um you know, um needed uh not recess but needed CPAP for a couple of minutes or whatever but he was fine and at the time I had no idea that I had torn so I ended up having a 3C tear so um not all the way through um but a significant perineal tear um into the internal anal sphincter so because they grade them don't they Jess this is probably where your expertise are far better than mine but like it goes one two three and then three goes down to like a b c d or have I got that wrong a b c and then four okay so four is all the way through 
to like you will have no fecal continence. It's all the way through okay. to your anus. Um, A3C is into your internal anal sphincter. So you have, so around your anus is an internal anal sphincter and then an external anal sphincter. And they um, obviously have um, a huge bearing in your fecal incontinence yep. uh, or your fecal continence. Um, and then even your perineal body, it's like a central tendon. So a lot of your perineal, your pelvic floor muscles actually attach onto that body and it's really fibrous. It's like a tendon-like structure. Okay. Um, and so a grade one is like a grade. They will sometimes give you a, a stitch or so and sometimes they won't. A grade two um, is a little bit longer. They don't, nece- they don't necessarily, the, the length of the um, tear doesn't have anything to do with it. It's the structures that they touch. Okay. So a grade two is still in your perineal body and an episiotomy is equivalent to a grade two. Okay. And then... A grade 3A is um, less than 50% of your external sphincter. Your grade 3B is greater than 50% of your external sphincter. And then a grade 3C goes through the external external sphincter into the internal sphincter. And then a grade 4 all of the way through. Wow. So a significant injury. Well, a significant injury, but at the time it actually wasn't found. Um, And what I later... No. So I guess I am diagnosed by um, by symptom. And then also when I was nearly, when I was pregnant with my second, I went and saw a proctologist after pushing quite firmly with my OBs, just saying, I don't, and here is another instance and another example of being able to advocate for yourself. I had all of the training then and I was like, I don't think I should birth vaginally. And they're like, oh, you don't want to birth vaginally. I was like, no, I would love to birth vaginally. I don't think I should. Um, and it was a really hard push. And um, I needed someone to be, A, hearing me out, and B, advocating for me in that instance. Yeah. And so I um, uh, managed to get a registrar, and she had just come to Tamworth. So by this time, I'm in Tamworth. She just come to Tamworth from John Hunter on a rotation. And uh, she was fantastic. She uh, referred me to a proctologist in um, Newcastle. She got me an appointment. It was like I was 35 weeks pregnant um, by the time I could get in. Um, and he did an anal ultrasound. Um, and so he was the one who diagnosed. Um, and his specialist letter was, I am surprised she had a comment on his letter was, surprised she has any continence at all. Um, so you weren't diagnosed, so you've given birth, you delivered your placenta, and they're just like, here's your bouncing, beautiful baby Artie, and then nothing. No one said anything about what your injury might have been. It wasn't until subsequent pregnancy where you're like, hang on, I have all these symptoms, I think I have this, and then it was confirmed at 35 weeks. Yes. So um, I was stitched up, but the difference between a grade 3 or a grade four, so an OAC, what we call an OAC, which is an uh, um, an obstetric anal sphincter injury, as opposed to just a grade one or a grade two, is that you should be taken into theatre so that you, because the muscle fibres run differently, they're circular, and you should be stitched differently. Um, and so that didn't happen. So I was repaired, but I was repaired as though I had a, stage, a grade two tear, not a grade three tear. And to in like not... No fault on anyone's. Um, the proctologist had, had actually said that my most of the 
most significant tearing of mine was internal. So on externally, from where you can see, it didn't look as bad as what the internal tearing. Oh, okay. So can you explain to our listeners what some of your symptoms were that made you just start to ask a few more questions? Absolutely. Well, immediately after, I um, struggled with continence. Um, but I'm talking both urinary and fecal. Um, if I had an urge to go and do a poo, I I had to run. And at the time, I had a very big swollen perineum with a lot of stitches because it was a big tear. Um, and it was just very uncomfortable, extremely um, confronting. Um, and I just, so that, that all improved over the next, so I did have a, a follow-up appointment with my GP OB at six weeks and she did ask all of the right questions and all of these symptoms were improving. Okay. And so in terms of her tick boxes, that that's the tick box. But yep. that's the hole in the that's the hole in the health system because that wouldn't have ticked my boxes as a women's health physio. Absolutely. Um, you would wouldn't have that's not right quite right to where you need to be. But for you, you have raised all of my red flags I would have like whenever I hear that in the clinic I get goosebumps from top to toe and I'm like mm-hmm, big grade two mm-hmm, what are your symptoms okay like straight away I'm like oh this lady needs looking after this is not okay yeah um so no one no one did the wrong thing it's just a gap in services um, hence that's where I am right yeah, now absolutely so <laughs> is there a risk say somebody has been missed and they, they've just they don't have the health literacy, they haven't chalked it up and they probably are a grade three, not a grade two. Is there a risk in delivering vaginally again? Is that is that why you were so strongly advocating for a C-section birth? Um, we're actually doing more and more research in that now, which is super interesting. I find it like I um, did a, a research update last year and then also um, an up-to-date birth prep course last year but like very like evidence-based birth prep course so not so much your skills based more like what are the what's the evidence saying and how is that impacting our practice yeah um so looking at big so, data of women who had these types of injuries and then went on to do either a vagina or a c-section birth i'm guessing for people to understand exactly yeah exactly and so what they found is that it not only, it doesn't necessarily depend on the injury that you had, it depends both on symptoms and then also the degree the degree of the defect in the anal sphincter. So anything above, oh, this is racking my brain, I want to say a 30-degree angle, to, no, sorry, it's a 50, anything greater than a 50-degree angle of a defect in your anal sphincter, um, that tends to be associated with higher risk of fecal incontinence. And so in that instance, they will opt for a a C-section delivery as opposed to a vaginal delivery. Yeah, I think it's good for people to know that there are options, that the evidence actually exploring huge populations is saying, hang on, you still have options. You don't just have to go one you know one model fits all it's worthwhile having a discussion with someone like yourself because um you might be able to explore your symptoms and your personal situation and explore the evidence and have more options at your disposal absolutely and like i'm we are very well aware as um, women's health physios like we are looking at a minute a minute um, part of the birthing experience 
like we that your your OBs and your midwives they are looking at the whole thing they're looking at baby's health they're looking at your health and they're looking at medically first and is everyone safe and and the pelvic floor trauma is it is a minute part of the entire birth experience but it is such an imperative part because we now know that there is so much pelvic floor trauma that can a be prevented and also b there are things that can happen that have lifelong consequences and that's the concern so it's a really interesting and fairly political area to be working in and navigating right now um because it it's it's and the pelvic floor, I suppose women's health videos having more of a role in this birth prep is the pelvic floor being our sole, our, our sole focus. So, yeah, your only consideration in the, in the uh, wider scheme of things. That's it. So we really need to be making sure that we're maintaining, obviously, the, the utmost respect for the entire process. And so it's just open communication lines um, and just, you know, putting across risk factors. So I'll write a letter to the OB and I'll just say, you know, uh, that our, you know, our patient is presenting with this risk factor, this risk factor. And all we do is put you into a category. You're at an average risk of perineal trauma. You're at a below average. You're at an above average. Yes, yeah, so um, we're falling back into that data scheme. Exactly. That's it. And that's all that we, that's all that we have right now is like categorizing into those, um, into those risks, like you're, yeah, your um, risk profile as such. So Artie really sparked a, a passion in you because you were saying prior you didn't have a lot of this knowledge. So uh, uh, tell us about the birth of the rural physio, w- w- the rural women's physio and what you've got on offer for people. Absolutely, I would love to. So um, yes, Artie absolutely sparked an interest and I have been trying to figure out how to solve this problem pretty much since then because I feel like yes and having my bricks and mortar practice here obviously I've done um my I've done a lot of short courses um and followed through um Karen Hallam is a a big leader in our women's health training here in Australia and has just um has just actually done our APA level one and two because there wasn't any of that beforehand she had a private training organization that I've done my training through um and so i went down i went down that line and then opened our bricks and mortar here and owning a bricks and mortar practice yes i have the opportunity to do satellite clinics yes i could travel and see people and but i just i can't get past i I feel like it's extremely unethical to turn up somewhere long enough to diagnose someone and then not be able to service them as much as what they need yeah, it's um, a real struggle here in the uh, – I have contracts with lots of different people and I do do a bit of travel and it's a huge it's a huge problem because I wonder how long people sit on wait lists. I, I've spoken about it openly before. I, it really concerns me how long people sit on wait lists. Absolutely. It, it really does. But then I think probably from my point of view, like in order for me to actually help somebody, it's that follow-up that is – that is um, necessary. An initial consultation just to diagnose is going to leave somebody all of a sudden consciously aware of what they're going through without necessarily a, a, a treatment plan or program. So the idea of doing satellite clinics or whatnot for me, I was like, oh, I really need to make sure that the follow-up care is solid 
before I go out there and try and help these women because I can be more I could be more harm than good. Oh, I guess that's where the um, the online programs were birthed from. Absolutely. So that's exactly where they've come from. So my online programs, or I've got um, my postpartum program, that postpartum recovery program that is online now, um, and I'm working on my birth preparation program to be launched in March. Um, and so both of them contain you know, a lot of educational content and then a lot of practical content as well. So they actually take you through what I would do face-to-face with a client, and I've spent a lot of time figuring out how I can make, so how I can, um, I guess, deliver a lot of my treatment techniques in a way that they can do that themselves. So a lot of self-technique and a lot of self-treatment. I was looking at it online and I what I really like is how it's broken down into four stages because I think as women we can get to the point where we just want it to be fixed. So I really liked that staged breakdown, um, and I'm going to quote it wrong, but it was like active, postpartum, like passive, like um, you give me the right terminology, sorry. I'm... Yeah, no, you're right. The first one is um, active, oh, rest and recovery. The second one is active recovery, and then it goes on to, um, gosh, it's been so long since I looked at that. Um, terrible too, isn't that? But functional strength and rehab. Um, and then we get to a point that we're returning to impact. Um, so it does step you all the way through. And the reason behind that is that I find exactly the same. I've got to do a lot of managing expectations. Like I've, I'm six weeks postpartum. I've been to my doctor. I've got the all clear. And then I'm left going, whoa, 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 back it up. We've got some things. Or this poor muscle wastage. We've got, you know, maybe a, a certain degree of prolapse or maybe a risk of developing. We might have a nerve injury. Like, and I'm the one that's left there going, oh, no, no, that is not the right thing for you right now. And so there's a lot of that managing expectations. And you know what? What we know is that, um, the, the, the less impact based exercise you do during those first 12 months, the better your pelvic floor outcome. Isn't that really good to know? So the uh, less is more, I guess. It's that it needs to change. It needs to be gentle. It needs to be strength-based, but we we need to get away from getting back to pounding the pavement, um, getting into cross it's like crossfit is wonderful but immediately postpartum like your pelvic floor has got to be at that at the right level first and we need to know that your body can um, absorb the shock and the weight that is going to come with that type of exercise before you step back into it um so yes low low impact activities best for that first 12 months particularly if you're breastfeeding yeah. Okay. So, how does someone find you, Jess? If they if they if this has really struck a chord with them, um, obviously, if they're in the Hunter New England region and they're prepared to travel, they can come and see you at the bricks and mortar. But um, how else might they engage with you? Um, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for um, giving me the opportunity to plug. <laughs> well, it's a we, great uh, service, and I think we just spoke before I hit record and. I'm in Allied Health. I live just up the road, and I, I I was literally asking Jess, how do I refer clients to them? Because you know, in the greater scope of mental health, a lot of the time there are lots of other health 
implications from birth that will affect somebody and the way they feel about themselves and their body. And so me being even able to refer to Jess um, for local-based clients is really, really important. So um, we we both know that there's a massive service gap. So um, how might people find you and, and engage with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yes, as you said, I've got bricks and mortar um, clinic here in Tamworth for anybody who can um can have access or can drive there, awesome. Otherwise, I have my website, The Rural Women's Physio. I'm on social media, The Rural Women's Physio, um, and I'm always available for uh, chat. So um, you'll, all of my details are both on the website and on my social media platform, um, and my inbox is always open. Um, I will be opening once I get my kids settled back into school and whatnot, telehealth appointments um, and even just opening little slots for a chat on certain days of the week just so that if you have a question you know you can reach out to somebody who has the expertise to help you whether that's help you find help you navigate what's going on help you navigate the health system help you find the services that you need if I can't offer them Um, and so that's probably the most exciting thing for me this year is I'm really looking forward to being able to um, work with my clients a little bit closer, help help direct rural and remote women around so that you have a point of contact um, to just call and ask questions. Because sometimes I get so many um, inquiries going, oh, this is going on. Is that a problem? And it's like, oh, look, let's have a chat about that. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, because as you said, it's that, you know, it's, it's knowing and without having exactly what your community offers, without having conversations with 15 of your girlfriends to try and navigate it, like what what is around. Yeah, absolutely. The premise of Her Herd is about exploring and celebrating the creative solutions that rural people come up with. And that is certainly you, Jess. You are certainly doing that for our community. I just want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and being so open with the community. I would highly recommend Jess. I've had a really good scroll through and she's clearly driven by the evidence. So if you're in need of some support postpartum, I think you need to go and find the Rural Women's Health Physio. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our chat. Um, And yes, I hope I haven't scared anybody off with my story, but so everyone knows completely continent now so that's a bonus (laughs) you you feel like you need to wear that disclaimer around your um (laughs) around your um your neck like oh no I actually can go to the toilet now it's fine and yeah it's okay I'm I'm a walking advertisement for it can get better if you find the right resources absolutely yes so any questions I just think talk absolutely talk whether it is to a girlfriend whether you're able to find the answers wherever you're able to find the answers and if you can't find them just keep talking you will find them just keep chasing you know when something's not right absolutely thank you so much her herd recognizes the traditional lands and waters on which this podcast was recorded.